Hello and welcome everybody to this episode. Today I'm discussing with Shilpa Subramaniam, the co-founder and director at The Learning Gym, how to design and facilitate an inclusive virtual training program. We focus on simple steps and tips to ensure the training intervention you design and deliver consider diversity and encourage inclusion. As I like to say, no impact possible in the virtual space if we do not consider inclusion. Hashtag inclusion. Welcome to the Virtual Space Here podcast. My name is Barbara and I have the big pleasure to talk on a regular basis to colleagues from across the globe about how they successfully lead and collaborate in virtual teams, how they design and facilitate virtual learning journeys, and how they organize and produce extraordinary and memorable virtual events. Only two days ago, I ran a fantastic webinar with Melanie Martinelli about the designer bias. So what do we need to consider when we design our learning program? Do you know, Melanie is the co-founder of The Learning Gym. And that is also why I feel like super fit, because today I am going to do more exercise on the topic with you together, because I have with me Shilpa Subramaniam, the other co-founder of The Learning Gym. And you know what? We are going to discuss today. We're going a step beyond what we need to consider when we think about our or when we design our learning programs. We are talking about what we need to do as facilitators also during and after a training program to foster inclusion in the virtual space. I am putting Shilpa on stage because we need her here with me. Shilpa, go ahead. Hello, 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 hello. Happy to be included. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm super excited. I feel like getting uh, always more fit this week, which is good. The learning gym is here with me in the house. I'm super happy about that. I've been following them for the past year, the virtual journey, and we only connected over LinkedIn, right? And when I saw that you also, with Melanie, developed something about designer bias and inclusion, I was super eager to discuss that topic with you. How did you come up with the topic inclusion and designer bias? Well, that's a that that's a really um, interesting um, question there because for us, inclusion. Both Melanie and I have been doing quite a bit of work in the inclusion space. Lots of um, interventions with different companies across the globe. But it took us a while to also realize that that the layer of inclusion also comes up when we're designing programs, when we're facilitating, and this came out even more during well, ever since last year when there's been a lot more virtual when we realized that inclusion is not just something that's a nice to have, it never is, but it became even more needed in the virtual space. And, and because our company works with different trainers and facilitators and teachers, we said, let's check whether this is something that other people are thinking about as well and want to do something. And hence, we kind of came up with all of these different inclusion strategies, including the Designer Bangs webinar and so on. So, so it, it came from our own learning, but it came from a place of recognizing that we can't ignore this anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, it's fun that you're saying that because I'm also, I was a gender and age bias researcher, age stereotypes. That was my PhD. So I was always thinking about inclusion in the workplace. I was never a learning bias or designer bias. I'm a researcher. 
still last year when we went virtual and as it happened to the learning gym as well, as you had a lot of experience, we had like a lot of requests. And the fun thing is what I experienced after like the first two, three months, a lot of requests for impactful virtual trainings or memorable, which is totally fine because also my motto is extraordinary and memorable learning business. But we also know, and that's something that became much, I became also more aware of it last year, that impact is impossible uh, without inclusion. And that is also where my sort of interest was more um, challenged and also my my research interest in the topic. And therefore, it's fantastic um, to have you here to discuss that. Let's think a little bit about what we were discussing also beforehand when we talk about designing and facilitating inclusive virtual training programs. So what are the key elements, Shilpa, that you would say to be considered before, during, and also after a virtual training program? Um, when we look at inclusion in the training space, there are two areas that we can look at. One is design and the other one is facilitation. And oftentimes people think about facilitation and they think about, okay, how can we be more inclusive from a facilitation standpoint? But they forget that the actual training design, which is your foundation, also needs to have elements of inclusion. So simple things that can be done and, and over the, the course of this conversation, I will share some simple tips and tricks that I, I've sort of formulated over time and tried and tested out to see which work, which don't work, which do you need to be careful about. But in general, a good place to start when it comes to the to the design is, is that concept of being aware of what are my design biases and preferences when I'm designing something. And once we get aware of it, then adjust for it and adapt for it. But inclusion is a mindset. So it's not just a collection. It's not just a checklist. Unfortunately, sometimes you can't just say, I did this, I did this, I did this. It also means constantly being present to see what's changed. Is there something I need to do differently now, which was not part of my original plan, but is needed now to make everyone feel more inclusive? So I think cultivating that mindset and constantly being aware of it, no matter what topic you're facilitating, is the, is the biggest key element, I would say. You know, one thing I'm wondering now here is, because there is a huge discussion. I just had it two or three weeks ago with Cassie Labori about the co-producer or the producer or co-facilitator that is much more important um, even in smaller virtual learning journeys in the virtual space than in an in an in-presence training. So I was wondering that this is even good for us if we talk about um, reflecting on our biases because the more we co-facilitate and co-design, we always have like this, we're always constantly challenging us. If we're aware that we should be doing that. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, like, like we said earlier, in order to build that inclusive mindset, it, it starts with that, with that designer bias. Here are some simple examples that I'd like to share with you of biases that we've heard from people and sometimes we've experienced ourselves. Uh, one that we hear very, very often. It's a leadership program for senior leaders. We can't have activities in it. They wouldn't want to do activities. And this is one we've heard face-to-face and the face-to-face one and the virtual one. Um, and that's a, that's a myth bias that I definitely want to like debunk today. That is not true. It is not true at all. Um, another one that, that comes up quite commonly is people using the same sort of activities or the exact same activities 
across all of their programs because that's one that they're most comfortable with. They like the most. They think it fits all sorts of situations. That's another designer bias that comes up quite a bit. So we've all got our comfort zones, but challenging yourself to say, what works best for this group, for this situation, for this topic, for the objective that I want is a much better question to ask than what do I like? That's a, that's a very good point. So on one hand, we have um, ourselves that we need to self-reflect always on what we are assuming and what our assumptions are making as a do or design for that particular group. And on the other hand, the co-facilitator as like a sparing partner. Um, the question would be now, so how do you address, you mentioned a few biases and that is fantastic so that we are aware of those like, well, they, they are all C-level leaders. Um, they don't want to play. They don't want to role play and stuff like that, that we uh, many of us have in mind. But how do you, what other methods do you personally, Shilpa, to address your own biases? So there are a few um, simple things. I'm, I'm, I'm having a bit of a chuckle at, at uh, uh, Jean-Louis' uh, <laughs> comment on white-collared people will not like activities. Oh, my God, you've heard it too. <laughs> but but here, are, here are some really simple things. And, and I know this one challenged my own bias. For me, I would rather not have a PowerPoint. I, I would rather things be free-flowing. Doesn't mean that I'm talking all the time, but that there's an activity running, there's participants doing something else. So I, I prefer things that way. But I realized as I started doing more virtual sessions, especially, that having written instructions to back up what you're saying, or having a few bits of text on the screen to reinforce what you're saying, helps those for whom you know, maybe they get bored of hearing my voice, which is completely possible, even though I think I have an awesome voice. But but that that was me challenging my own bias. Thank you. That was me challenging my own bias to say, while this might be my preference, I still need to cater to a wider audience and a wider range. So a lot of times we've seen people give these vast instructions of they first go do this, then you're going to the breakout room, then you're going to do that, then you're going to do that. And five minutes later, there's any questions and there are no questions. And you can assume at that point that everyone's got it, but there's a good chance they haven't. So having some written reinforcement of what you're saying is an easy way, for example, just to make sure that everyone gets it. Another very simple tip is sometimes because of technological differences, let's be honest, we've all got those our participants come from all over the world, from different situations. Technology might not be at the same level everywhere. And if you're using an application where everyone's doing an activity, got a few people who are not able to take part from a technology perspective, I think finding ways to include them in the process is really important. Maybe they're, they're observers. Maybe they get a specific role that they have to do something and comment on it at the end of of that specific activity. Um, so these are things that sometimes you can't plan for, which is why I'm saying it's a mindset. So you have to look at it on the spot and go, okay, this person can't be a part of it. What can I do to include her? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. We were talking about having written messages, and it's a good point. On one hand, we have sometimes we struggle with technology, we lose connections, so we might not hear everything. Or also language. Sometimes there is a language barrier where it helps if we put something into the chat, a main message, or our co-facilitator does, right? Absolutely. So, so a couple of things on language. One, 
we at the learning gym are huge fans of having a, a producer slash co-facilitator on all of the sessions that we do. We've recognized tremendous value in it because when you're facilitating, you might not be aware of everything that's going on and the dynamics of things, but your producers can pick up on that. Um, so uh, I'll give you one example. We were on a platform uh, doing a session for a large group of people, and we came to know beforehand that someone in the session was hearing it. And unfortunately, on that particular platform at that time, there was no closed caption option. So mm-hmm. the decision that I then took is to have one of our colleagues dedicated to that one person and just writing in to him, not just what I was saying, but what everyone else in the session was saying as well. And if a joke was made, that was typed in. If somebody said something, that was typed in. And by the end of it, that person was so happy to be included in this different way and without having closed captions, which would have been ideal, that they're small things, but they're things that make a huge impact. A couple, two two other things on, on language. First is we need to be aware of our own language. And, uh, and and I have a I have a short story here about my own learning. I use the term you guys quite a bit. I used to. Um, are you guys okay? I have you guys finished? And I don't know if any of you can raise your hands and say you do as well or you have as well. I was brought up in a very American TV watching, movie watching, reading kind of household. And so that got into my language quite quickly. But someone pointed out, it was a lady who pointed out that she actually felt very inclusive when I kept using the term you guys. And I, had, I didn't even think of that. It didn't even cross my mind. And it needed someone's feedback to say, really? And that's when I made the decision to be more careful of not using that term. And if it does slip out, I quickly apologize and backtrack. But that's a really simple example. Mm. But I think it's a very powerful example that you're giving. And I think probably in English, it's even easier. Just thinking about German or Spanish or Italian as well. When I speak German, I started gendering uh, my language a few years ago already. And in German, it is always because you need to say like that both genders for a profession, for example. So it makes it really longer, but I do it and I'm used to that. I'm also used to it in Spanish, although it's not as common in Spain, at least from my perception. But it is very, very powerful to to make people feel included. And also, for example, if we think about how what names or what examples we give, because that's also our stories, the story we share or examples we give, the pictures we use, those are all small elements, but super powerful, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I see a lot of people sort of agreeing with the with the concept of avoiding language that might uh, make other people feel not included. And and to me, Barbara, if I, if I can share, the biggest learning was not the fact that I was using the term. The biggest learning was the fact that we need to step back and say, maybe this only impacts one person, but it still impacts that one person negatively. So it's worth doing something. Absolutely. I think that's a, that, that, that's an amazing um, statement, Shilpa, that even if it's only one person, but that one person is affected, impacted by it. Um, tremendously powerful. What else, if you think about, uh, we're talking about facilitations, so we covered a little bit the written messages, the chat, we, we talked about closed captions, we talked about our own language, and also, for example, maybe that's the challenge for both, I assume, 
slowing down a little bit, right? <laughs> um, yes. If we have the language aspect, what else would you say from a facilitator perspective during the session is something important? I think one thing that we can always allow for, actually there, there's two strategies that come to mind here. The first one is allowing people the time to process the language, whether it's whether it's me speaking or whether it's stuff that's written down on the screen that they need to read and, and process. And oftentimes, and I don't know about all of you, but I know I've fallen into this trap. You know, we are never slow enough. Oh my God, that is so true. And then if we're too slow, then we're too slow, right? It's a Goldilocks conundrum. Uh, <laughs> but the but the one thing that, that often happens is when you, you say something, you give instructions, and then you're waiting for people to process that information. There'll be a few who will finish quickly. And then if their webcam is on, you'll see them kind of just looking elsewhere, doing something, looking slightly bored. And that's when you begin to panic a little. You begin to say, okay, are people getting bored? Do I need to move on? Let's move on. But there might still be people in the group who haven't finished processing it. And, and it's unfair to them. So one tip or one trick there is to have something small for the person to do who's already finished reading it. Write your thoughts on the chat, you know, open up that document and make your notes on that there. Reflect on it for yourself for a moment. So whatever little bit you give them, so that way you don't lose the people who finished processing it, but at the same time, you're being inclusive to those who need to take the time that they do. I love the example. It's a very important one because very often we feel the pressure of those fast thinkers in the group need to cater for their needs. But very often, and it happens to me as well, and very often, then we forget about those who just process differently. And that's, that's a super important point. So um, you mentioned have a specific other task for those who finish earlier. I'm now thinking about that. Because the moment, do you send it to them then maybe privately? Because I'm just thinking, if I send another specific task to them in the general chat, that brings more pressure to those who haven't finished processing yet, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So you would send it on a private chat, quickly send them a message. And sometimes they might just respond to say, you know what, that's fine, I'm just thinking about things. And then you leave them to it. But I think having options available is really, really important. Yeah, asking who needs more time. Now, there, there's a cultural element to that as well. In not every culture will people admit and say, I need more time. Because, I mean, are you admitting in some way that you're slower than others? Which is true at all. But perceptions, right? So even though we do ask these questions, let's also have the add-on to get other cues. If Again, if the webcam is on, great, you can see the cues. If not, based on your interactions with the group, try and give them a bit more time. Mm -hmm. So on, on one hand, we could always use like the polling function if we have that prepared in the platform where we are. So we have an anonymous feedback, how we do with time. And also the, the being anonymous could help, for example, to not sort of um, make anybody feel uncomfortable. And there was an interesting tip two days ago uh, or comment in the webinar with Melanie uh, one of our participants said, well, what you could do is, for example, have everybody rename themselves in dot, 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 
And then you could ask that because anybody who is answering then in the general chat is a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so even that yeah. could sort of help to take the pressure of those who need more time. Absolutely. And and of course, it's a, it's a bit of a balance because you don't want to overload people with too much. But at the same time, if you find that the gap between the pace of learners to process information is too much, then you need to do something. If the gap is negligible, then leave it alone. But I think that's important. And Antonio, you're right. It is about losing face in a lot of cultures, you know, admitting that you do need more time. Um, and so culture plays a huge role in there as well, and, and which is also why tweaking and changing our own facilitation style sometimes, depending on cultures, also becomes equally important. So I don't know if you've noticed, I'm a very head-nodding, gesticulating person And so for me to be still when I'm speaking is that much harder. But I know that it can be distracting in certain cultures when I'm effusive with my body language. And so specifically when I'm working with a lot of those cultures here, then I try more stillness in order to not distract and in order to not take away. After that, there are personal preferences, but just a few things to be mindful of. Language is another one as well. Allowing people to talk in the language that they want. If it's a breakout room discussion on the chat, somebody wants to converse in another language, collaborate in another language, go for it. As long as after that, the key message is shared in the common language. I think, yeah, that, that's another one. That's another one that I think is quite key. Getting people to be comfortable when they're creating. Absolutely. And I just want to pick up on what you were saying, because the aspect of gesticulating, that's also a little bit my thing. I just remember my first webinar, like, I don't know, seven years ago, it went pretty well. But afterwards, MBHR manager told me, content's fantastic. You were speaking up too fast, because that's always my, like, I'm scared about speaking too fast. But apparently, I was gesticulating the whole time in front of my, in front of my face, even. So, like, <laughs> making people even aggressive or something. So, Clearly, that's something to take into consideration. But also, your, and I talked to a colleague about that, the digital body language is also something, and the way you facilitate is also something that supports the feeling of inclusion. And um, also keeping the space here. I know some trainers and facilitators who get emotional and then they get really close to the camera that could also be perceived as invading the space a little bit, right? Of our participants are like, whoop. I don't really feel like I'm very comfortable in this. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, if you think about, uh, Shilpa, if you think about breakout rooms in general, would you say mm. that there is something we should consider um, from an inclusion perspective when we organize facilitate breakout rooms? Yeah, so this is a, this is a, a, a tricky one. And um, one thing that, that I have learned that I find quite useful to do in that is reminding people before they go in how many people are going to be in the breakout room and how much time they have. Because if it's a breakout room where we want everyone to voice their opinion um, and share their views with each other or share their answers with each other, then pointing out to the time and maybe having a timer in the breakout room, most platforms do allow, well, some platforms allow for that and they're going to work them or making one person the timekeeper. Because the, the fear here is you will have the type A personalities, the loud people, them. Um, sort of take over the conversation sometimes, or keep talking so much because they're so interested. 
And then more than half the time's gone and everyone else gets about 10 seconds, which is extremely unfair. And this might keep happening over time and then the others might just stop talking at one point. Say, please, by all means, go say what you need to say. So reminding people to say, four of you are going in, you've got eight minutes, so that's two minutes per person. Make sure someone's keeping an eye on time. And I know this sounds like it's too much specificity or too many instructions, but from an inclusion standpoint, you're making everyone aware. You have to be inclusive in listening to everyone else's voices too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking about Toasty, which is also a virtual workshop platform. And in Toasty, for example, if you have such group activities where you ask people to discuss for a certain amount of time a topic, in Toasty, you can even assign speaking time to each person so that you sort of try to democratize it beforehand. Or Jitsi, for example, in Jitsi, you as a facilitator, which helps you But, well, very often it's very clear who is the dominant speaker in a group or who are the dominant speakers. Anyways, in Jitsi, you have speaker statistics as well that you can check on, for example, which is really interesting. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the tips. Really good point. And there was one more thing connected to that. You know, speaker statistics reminded me. And this is, again, me challenging my own bias and also maybe all of yours. How many times do we have a tendency mostly to call on those who are on webcam, have their video on. So does anybody have anything to say? And I can see Barbara is on her webcam. Barbara, would you like to add something? And especially if you have a group where, you know, you've got a smaller percentage that are not on the webcam, you might tend to forget. You might tend to not call on them because you don't see their faces. That That's human. That, that's the way our brains wired. So one thing that you could do is actually make a list of the participants in the session. And I mean, if you really want to be inclusive and actually put a tick for at least once that someone's spoken. So by the end of the session or during the break, if you go back to that, you should be able to see who hasn't spoken at all. And maybe you call on them or you give them an option. That's what I say. If they don't want to speak after that, that's fine. We give you an option. We make sure that your voice, we make sure we let you know your voice is important. Yeah, absolutely. Usually you have 10 minutes in the room. So if someone speaks for eight minutes, then the others only have two minutes left. It's a very good point that we also use our power as a facilitator of the broadcasting messages to remind people in the breakout rooms of time management. Maybe it's also good if we assign a facilitator, like a moderator and a timekeeper that also could help, right? And it's also fun because Anna, I know Anna is also using Toasty. Um, quite often the best thing is that you can see the statistics of who talked most. That person isn't the facilitator for all the sessions. That's another bias that, that we need to work on. It's my session. You need to hear my voice the most. Um, that's another bias we have to, to work on. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a good point. And I just remember last year when I had Joshua Davis here on my show, he said, and, and he introduced me to the quote that I before, it is the one who is doing the talking is the one who is doing the learning. And we as facilitators need to keep that very present in our minds in order not to over-talk our workshops, right? But really have people interact and uh, talk. Regarding, regarding inclusion, we mentioned at the beginning a little bit, or you mentioned at the beginning a little bit, 
learning and processing speeds and styles. So if you think about that, you had a powerful example about how fast we are working on an activity and how fast we can deliver a task, for example. What other aspects when it comes to learning and processing styles would you take into consideration if we consider um, inclusion? Yeah. Well, first off, in terms of learning styles, I mean, there's been enough research now to debunk learning styles themselves and and, and preferences. But what still exists are communication preferences. We all have those communication preferences. Would you rather type? Would you rather talk? Um, and so giving people options becomes important. The number of facilitators I've heard who say, but if they have the chat on while I'm speaking, then are they really listening to me? But is the point for them to process information? Maybe they process best when they're typing in, when they're having a conversation about it. So that's another, you know, it's it's a bit of a setback sometimes to you as a facilitator where you're going, really, like, are they still listening? You question yourself, but it's about giving people options. Have the chat open, have audio open. Give people both options. You can either speak up or you can respond on chat because it's you're respecting preferences. You're respecting communication preferences. Um, and that and, and that becomes really, really important. Um, also, when it comes to participants' preferences, another thing that's key is technology preference and technology comfort. Not everyone is as comfortable with technology. Let's just be honest about that. And by the way, that does not depend on age. It does not depend on experience. I think it's just person to person. Again, the whole concept of, oh, they're young people, they'll get the technology. Or they're, oh, oh no, they're going to be seniors, they won't get it. So here's another example or, or, or a story which sort of proved this wrong. We had a client where I was doing a lot of sessions for the people on the manu- uh, in the manufacturing plant. So they were people actually on the floor, working in the plants, working in the factories. And so I was told by HR beforehand, just use very simple technology. They won't be able to deal with any of the fancy apps that you use elsewhere. No Mentimeter, no Kahoot, no none of that. And I said, let's try. I'm going to do a few of these. Let's try. Let's see how it goes. And you wouldn't believe it. Not, not only were they fantastic at it, they actually loved it. And that was their feedback at the end of that session to say they loved that they got to use all these different technology bits. So, yeah, I think we all are slaves to some of our biases and preferences, but challenging ourselves on it, having someone else give us feedback on it might be a good way to ask ourselves where we're going and be more inclusive. Absolutely. And also our role as facilitator is sort of setting, for example, I think what, I, what we are trying to do here, for example, just with the very, very small message that sometimes flows in to encourage you to use the chat, to include you in the conversation, whatever, however you do that in the platform that you're using, it can be you chat, putting that message into the chat or the co-facilitator to encourage people and give them also the feeling of wanting their comments there. It's my personal perception is that a coordinator, a moderator, or a timekeeper helps also to facilitate the conversation. And we usually do that by, because we want to also encourage them to get quick into the discussion. And I have sometimes the feeling that people stick too long to decide who's going to the moderator. So I make it about hair, short hair, long hair, and I change that. So I'm not exclusive that only the long hair people are the moderators. No, 
Sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's long hair, sometimes it's the darkest hair. I'm totally changing on that as well. <laughs> awesome. Name starting with S, name starting with M, whoever has a name starting with the first alphabet that comes in. Lots of ways to make it random. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's important, Barbara, to realize that when our participants see us demonstrating behavior that's inclusive, um, that's something that they will start emulating as well. Not to say that they aren't already being inclusive, but sometimes people don't realize that they're perhaps not being as inclusive as they can because they're busy, because they're thinking of things, because their personalities take over. None of it is from bad intention, but I think it helps to call out just certain things and say, I want to make sure that we do this. I want to make sure we, we hear what this person has to say. And then it cascades. It's like a domino effect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, that is super, super important, the way we walk the talk, of course. And that needs a lot of reflection, self-reflection, a good perception of oneself. But also, I still find it so valuable if we have a cooperative. That's the thing because in the virtual space, it's, it's really more important than in an in-presence training sometimes that we have that and we have sort of peer exchange, peeling and feedback that we are getting, right? Yes, absolutely. And the attitude, our attitude being helpful, approachable, accessible helps a lot. It definitely is valuable. To, to leave you with, I mean, there's so many things that you can think about when it comes to inclusion, but sometimes it's also about, and since at the beginning, Barbara, we spoke about making workshops more impactful, making workshops more memorable. A, a lot of that also comes when everyone in the workshop also feels included in, in different ways, because inclusion, again, means different things to different people. So I think finding and striking that balance and making it an inclusion workshop. Uh, I love is, that. That's pretty <laughs> cool. That, that is very cool. <laughs> you should trademark before someone else takes it. <laughs> My social media marketing manager really loves it. And a few people also find it funny. So I stick to that. Inclusion is impact plus inclusion because as you said, and that's so true, we cannot have an impactful virtual training if not everybody feels included. And also one of our aims as facilitators should be to include everybody as much as, as we can, as we manage. As, as much as we can. Uh, uh, a simple way might just be to check with them how they want their names pronounced. Because I've heard, I've heard a lot of facilitators kind of tell me in confidence to say, I didn't call on this particular person because I wasn't sure how to pronounce their name and I was scared of mispronouncing it, which is a which is a valid fear, which is a completely valid fear. I know I've had that, but something as simple as that and checking whether you're saying people's names or And I know it might sound silly, but it makes an impact to people. I'm sure we've all been in situations where things like this have put us off a little bit and you're going, okay, I told you how to say that or you didn't even ask me. And so it might be small things, but they all have huge impact. Mm -hmm. I think that's also one of the main messages that I try to convey when I do my um, inclusion trainings, that some of those things, but it's the same with leadership trainings, right? If we talk to leaders and do a leadership training, the things that we're talking about, they sound so small and sometimes so banal and so obvious, 
but they have a huge impact. And these small things, very often we just forget them because they are so small. So both of us, we need to constantly challenge our language, whatever language we're talking in, or all of us, in terms of to make everybody feel included. And that takes time to change language as well. And um, But we are coming to an end, Silva. Is there one final advice you would like to give us? Something, something as small and banal like knowing how to pronounce participants' names, but with a huge impact. Um, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I feel like all I've been doing is like giving banal advice and tips like that. But hopefully, you found it interesting. Um, I, I think just the, the one thing that I would want to leave us with is that inclusion is always a choice. I mean, diversity is a given. We have diversity in thought and, and language and, and preferences, um, but, but inclusion is a choice. So I think if we all as a community, if we all as a community of virtual superheroes choose inclusion, then I think that we will end up having a very positive impact in our space. And even if that's a small step or a big something that you're changing in your design, it's well worth going back and having a think about it. Fantastic. And I think these are super powerful words. Thank you so much. I'm super happy that you accepted. Yes. Uh, thank you all so much for being a part of this. And it was really fantastic having conversation with you, Barbara, but with also everyone else who's joined us. Thank you all so much and have a wonderful day ahead, wherever you are. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, we highly appreciate if you share our podcast via social media or with a colleague. If you want to get more tips, tricks, practices, and tools directly to your inbox, please go to our webpage, virtualspacehero.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, become a virtual space hero.